0: Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Tim Jorgensen, a professor of radiation medicine and director of the Health, Physics and Radiation Protection Graduate Program at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss his new book, Spark! The Life of Electricity and the Electricity of Life. Tim, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps.
1: I'm so glad to be here, with Seam. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Tim, you discuss amber in the book, which was most likely the first material with which humans attempted to harness electricity, mostly for medical purposes. Talk us through some of these earliest known experiences that people had with electricity.
1: Okay, so it's it seems that amber, first of all, is fossilized tree resin. And it's very prevalent in areas of the, Balt- the Baltic areas. Um, anywhere there was big coniferous forests in prehistoric times. And the amber, um, it got into... Uh, uh, it got into the sea, and it's very light, and it it floats around. So you can find it in along riverbanks, um, all along the coasts of Scandinavia and other places in the world as well. And um, it, if you if you shine it, um, it it looks like a gemstone, and so it is categorized as a gemstone. And and we believe that some of the earliest. Um, people's um, wore it as jewelry. in fact, we found um, jewelry artifacts with with amber, so it was one of the first gemstones that people had access to and um, But people thought it was more than beautiful because if you rubbed amber with wool or or other materials. You could get it to attract small particles of you know straw or, or dust and things like that. And if you rubbed it enough and you went to touch it, it would give you a shock. And so people believe this had mystical properties. And 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 humans are of the t- of, of the mindset that if something has mystical qualities, you can probably use it to um to, as a health, uh, health aid. And so it wasn't long before people were rubbing amber on their bodies with the idea that, well, if it could attract these particles, maybe it could pull disease out of your body. They were grinding it up and putting it into medicines. Um, they, were, they, they truly believed that it had magical powers and that it could be um, exploited for the betterment of, of men's health. So this is the first experience that people had with electricity. And when they found that other objects actually had these properties, they called them amber-like properties. And in Greek and Latin, um, the word amber uh, is electricus. And so that's how we get the term electricity. It's amber-like. That's what that's what it means in, in Greek and Latin. So um, we have a long history of electricity that dates all the way back to the discovery of amber.
0: Romans also used non-static electricity from specific types uh, of fish. What were the main uses of non-static electricity from fish? And uh, I'm very keen to know, how did they do it? Well... Um,
1: one of the most com- there are many electrical fishes throughout the world, and a lot of people are familiar with the electric eel, which is primarily a species species of South America. But even in Europe, in the Mediterranean Sea, there is a, a fish called or tor- uh, torpedo ray, and, and it looks like a, like any other type of ray fish. And um, fishermen, uh, they would if you picked one up that they caught in their nets, or they would get shocked, even if they speared it they would get shocked and if they if they got even close to it in the water they could get shocked and so this was, um, they believed that these fish had electrical properties and, and guess what? If they had electrical properties, they would probably work as well to treat disease. And so the, the ancient Romans have, have recorded that they used these fish to treat everything. They put it on people's heads to shock their heads for headaches and things like that. There's even records of them putting at their other end to treat hemorrhoids. You know, um, it was considered to be, um, therapeutic and again the idea was if your body can feel it it must be doing something for it perhaps it's doing something something good and so it it was common to do that to use to use electrical fishes to to treat disease
0: and then benjamin franklin also tried to harness the power of electricity and he even tried to kill and cook a turkey by electric shock
1: Yeah, so Benjamin Franklin was one – he became – this was around 1750s, a little earlier than than 1750. Um, He became aware of um, the properties of static electricity because at that time there were – Traveling demonstrations, um, people were making money by going around uh, from city to city and having little static electricity shows. Um, so they did different demonstrations to amaze their audience. And uh, when one of these shows went to Philadelphia where, where, um, where uh, Franklin was the post uh, master general, um, he, went, he, he saw one advertised and he went to one of these shows. And he was just amazed at what he saw. And he had no explanation for what was going on. And he wrote to his um, scientifically minded friends that were mostly in Europe and asked them, you know, what's the story with this static electricity stuff? And they, and they explained to him that many people were working on it, but there were many things that were still not understood. And um, so Franklin got interested in, and he started um, he started playing around with electricity, and he showed up at just the right time to do work scientific work with electricity, because in the Netherlands, um, a, a scientist named von um invented something uh, in Leiden uh, that has since become became called the Leiden jar. And um, it basically is, is a means to store electricity. It's it's Think of it as a large jar, a pickle jar, like a pickle jar. And it's lined on the outside with aluminum foil. It's lined on the inside with aluminum foil, but the inside foil and the outside foil doesn't make contact. Instead, the outside foil is connected by a wire or chain to the ground and the inside foil is connected to a electro- electrode post through the roof. And if you had static electricity that you generated by rubbing something, you could touch it to that top post and it would go into the jar and stay in the jar. And if you kept doing this over and over again, you could fill the jar with static electricity. So this became a means of actually storing static electricity and more importantly than that, it became a means of accumulating a great deal of electricity in a container. And so that allowed them to do... So the Leyden jar um, was the first electrical storage device, but it also allowed them in a controlled way to do experiments with electricity. So Franklin, um, you could you could generate enough electricity in here to kill a turkey, as you mentioned. And, um, and the reason that uh, we uh That uh, we know about that is because uh Franklin had tried to do this uh he was very fond of turkeys um, i don 't know i don 't think there is i don 't think you have any turkeys in 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 europe do, are there turkeys in europe i don't think so but it 's an American delicacy here
0: yes we, uh, we 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 do get turkeys here.
1: Okay okay good good but we have turkeys in every state of the United States and um and people like to eat them and uh including Franklin and he claimed that when you killed a turkey with electricity it was more tender than if you did it the traditional way which was to decapitate it okay so whether this is true or not and there's reasons to think that it is absolutely not true um he believed that and so he would do this and he would demonstrate to his friends how how you kill a turkey with a leiden jar except one day um he made a mistake and he and instead of touching the, the Leidenjarge of the turkey, he, he intervened and he touched it, the wire himself. And in doing so, he, he knocked himself senseless, basically. He blacked out. He had a welt on his hand. He fell to the ground Um yeah he he had marks on his on his body from it and he almost killed himself and then he never he never killed turkeys that way again so and he was quite bar- embarrassed about it he he sent letters to uh, a friend in boston s- admitting what he did but asking him not to tell anybody because he was so embarrassed that he could be so stupid as to do this
0: and uh, when benjamin franklin attempted to harness electricity in the atmosphere And he flew a kite through a thunderstorm. I think the kite just picked up the ambient electrical charge from the storm. Otherwise, he might have been killed at that time. However, uh, this is a true story.
1: Yes, it is true. So, um, actually, the the details are kind of interesting. So, he first proposed that um, you could bleed okay, so many people suspected that there was static electricity in clouds okay you saw the sparking and all of that right it was wasn't too difficult to believe that there was electricity involved um, and so um it's not true that he discovered that that storm clouds had electricity but he proposed a way to bleed the electricity out of the cloud and so um, his originals um uh, experimental design was that you would build a very tall pole that it would go up into in, into the sky and it would bleed electricity down. And that was his original plan. And he published that before he actually did it. And um, French scientists took an interest in that. So they started working on that. He was going to do the same experiment in the United States, but, you know, it. The logistics of it had—he wanted to do it on top of a church steeple. He wanted to get—he had to get permit. All this kind of stuff. People had issues about the dangers, so um, he decided that well, the hell with it. I think I could do the same thing with a kite. Okay, and so he put—he—he put, he, um, he put a, uh, a wire on top of a kite. He put it up in the sky, and his plan was to capture the electricity in a Leyden jar, just just like he had, you know, from rubbing things and. So he, he, that was gonna be his proof. And so he sent it up into the sky. He did collect the electricity in the Leyden jar. He knew that there was electricity coming through because he could, he could feel little shocks coming from him. He touched it to the Leyden jar, he filled, he filled it, and then he tested the electricity in his Leyden jar and showed that it had all the properties of static electricity. So he was the first to capture the, the electricity from a thundercloud. In a Leyden jar, and so that that was really his. And and ironically, when he reported it, it had already his original experiment with the rod going into the sky had already been done by the French. Okay, his experiment they did it before uh, Franklin ever flew his kite, but he didn't know that at the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting, very interesting. And there was another implication of these experiments and these findings that people understood that if you put a pole, uh, a lightning rod, on the top of a building connected to the ground by a wire, it would save the building from lightning from thunderstorms?
1: Yeah, so so this was a huge problem. So um, Frank, this was Franklin's idea. This was his next idea is that if we can, so his idea was if we can bleed the electricity out of the cloud, maybe we can prevent the cloud from sending a lightning bolt to the ground. Okay, So that was the idea, that all the tall buildings would have these rods going in the sky, bleeding the electricity out of them, and they would never strike anything. They'd never produce any any lightning bolts if they they went near the wire. Well, it turns out that lightning rods work. They, They do work, but not the way he thought. The way they work is that the lightning bolt actually hits the rod because it is the tallest thing in the area, the electricity goes into the ground and that's how the buildings are protected. Not because you can't bleed enough electricity out of a cloud to stop it from striking, okay? So, um, so this, is, um, th- this was tremendously successful, tremendously effective, okay? Um, there are records showing that many churches in Europe were hit many, many times and then they installed a lightning rod and they were never hit again. You know, so this was this was very very useful and it spread throughout the world um, and saved many many lives because it was a major problem at the time that no one had a, had any solution for this lightning bolt burning churches and other tall buildings down.
0: Let us stay with the concept of uh, the Leyden jar for a few more minutes. The Leyden jar was perhaps the first known device uh, that made it possible to collect and store charge uh, from static electricity. Uh, It was uh, an early form of capacitor.
1: It is exactly a capacitor. It is a capacitor. So today we would call that a capacitor. And and so, um, yeah, capacitors are the same thing. They, char- they store charge between two plates. It's the same idea. That inside foil and that outside foil is analogous to the two plates in the capacitor. So that's, yes, you're exactly right. It was the first capacitor.
0: And uh, were there other uses of uh, laden jar uh, at that time? Uh, was it being widely used uh, at, at that time?
1: It was it was primarily being used by scientists to store electricity to conduct their experiments and also to measure electricity. So there was no, they didn't yet have any way to measure electricity. So they'd say they they needed they need five Leyden jars of, of electricity to do this, you know, and um, and uh, and they would also connect them. You could connect them in series to make as. Big, electrical. Uh, well, it, it, it's actually, some people, including Franklin, called them batteries because it represented like a battery of cannons. You know, it was a battery of Leiden jars. And this this term later got co-opted um, for the actual storage battery that, that we have today, you know, from Volta. But he originally called them batteries because if you no matter you could make as much electricity as you want by just linking all these jars together and then discharging them.
0: And some of the concepts that we use to store electric charge in this manner, the way a laden jar does it, are still used in modern day batteries. Uh, Yes.
1: Um, So now this is um, so not to confuse this. So you're right. The laden jar is a capacitor. But when we talk about batteries today, we're actually talking about electrochemical batteries. So electrochemical batteries produce electricity a little differently. They have a chemical reaction that's going on inside of them, and that chemical reaction produces a flow of electrons. And so we, they're generally um, uh, metals, and uh, two, uh, two different metals with some type of insulator in between. Or, and... Um, and um, and this is how we produce batteries and that was first discovered accidentally um, by Volta Alexandria Volta in Italy and what he was trying to do going back to our first story is he was trying to make an artificial electric organ of fishes okay and um, when he when he accidentally stumbled upon uh, what he, he called it a, a pile because he would pile these discs of metal. So he called it a pile. Um, when he actually discovered that this pile of, of metal discs could produce electricity, he, when he published it, he called it an, an artificial electric organ of fishes. <laughs> okay. Now we now know that, that fish do not produce electricity the same way, um, that, that Volta's battery does. In fact, What fish do is much more analogous to a Leyden jar, okay? They store electricity in their cells and then release it all at once. But um, but, uh, the battery that we use today is an outgrowth of Volta's initial discovery and um, I call it—I like to call it—discovery rather than invention, because we are surrounded by electrochemical reactions all the time. Rust is an electrochemical reaction. Okay, so he didn't discover that there were electrochemical reactions. He—he—I he, I mean, he didn't invent this battery. He discovered. That these electrochemical reactions produce electricity. So, um, so he is the father of the battery. And batteries today, uh, the materials have changed. Um, he was using copper and zinc, and now we use use lithium batteries, of course, for for the for the most part, lithium and carbon. But the principle is basically the same. It's the same as as Volta's original uh, principle.
0: You are absolutely right that uh, we should not confuse these two concepts uh, because some batteries uh, just uh, store electric charge. And as you mentioned a few moments ago, there are batteries that produce electric charge using chemical reactions.
1: Right, but the, the, the advantage of the electrochemical battery is that, um, so ke- most, many chemical reactions can be run in reverse. So um, you, you put two chemicals together and they'll cause a reaction that will produce electricity. Many times if you pump electricity in, back into the reaction, the reaction goes in reverse, and that's the principle of rechargeable battery. You know, you, get, you, the, you, you drain it by running the chemical re- reaction one way, and then you hook it up to electricity, and you push the reaction back the other way, and you go back and forth, and that's why you're able to use electrochemical um, Batteries to store electricity. Initially, in volta's time, that wasn't the case. When you expended the material, you expended the material. That was the end of the battery. But then, we, as we learn more about electrochemical reactions, the, this idea that hey, maybe we could run this backwards and and put the battery back, the energy back in, that, that turned out to be correct.
0: Tell us about the experiments that uh, Luigi Galvani conducted. Uh, when electricity produced movement in cut off legs of uh, frogs, uh, Galvani called uh, this uh, animal electricity.
1: Yeah, so um, so as we've already said, fish can produce electricity, right? And the question was, you know, can other animals produce electricity? Do they do they do they do this? Is there something called animal electricity that comes out of animals and and um, Galvani, another uh, Italian scientist that lived at the same time as Volta, um, he was was uh, interested in frog legs. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an occasion to eat frog legs or prepare them to eat, but if you cut them off, a frog, um, a freshly killed frog, they continue to... To uh, move, they continue to to the legs continue to move. If you if you sprinkle them with salt, they'll move even more. Okay, so this kind of intrigued um, Galvani, and he had this idea that the frog legs were producing electricity, and the electricity was stimulating the movement. They were producing their own electricity. So he did a number of experiments, and he published on this. And um, he so he would basically. He would wire the frog leg. He would hang them on a hook, and then touch them with different metals. And that's how he was trying to do his experiments. And initially when he published this, Volta, um, uh, his scientific colleague was very impressed with this, but then Volta realized something that um, he realized that Galvani was using two different metals to conduct these experiments he was putting the, um, the frog leg on a iron fence with a brass hook. Now, this, this <laughs> reset, then Volta said, whoa, 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 I know what happens when you mix two different metals, you get electricity. The electricity is not coming from the frog leg, it's coming from the fence and the, and, and the hook, okay? Which turned out to be absolutely correct. But it was very, very difficult to prove who was correct because they didn't have any instruments sensitive enough to measure things um, like electricity coming from the fence at that time. And so um, this debate went on for a number of years and they became arch rivals. And this is one of the scientific, uh, one of the, the most famous scientific controversies of all time, the Galvani uh, uh, volta controversy over whether or not there is animal electricity. So um, so the, the truth of the matter is, it's pretty subtle now though, is that yes, all things create electricity because our nervous system can generate electricity. So, um, but not, um, but, but not it's, it's not to the extent um, that we see in fish, electrical fishes, which actually have organs to do this big time so that they can shock their prey. So they're, they're, they were both a little bit correct on this. But it's most famous because it was this scientific rivalry that, uh, that uh, mesmerized the scientific community for a couple of decades.
0: And Galvani had a nephew, uh, who went one step further and was doing experiments on dead humans using electricity?
1: Yes. So, um, so um, Galvani had a nephew named Aldiri. And Aldiri was also a very famous and important scientist in his own right. And he was one of the first ones that thought, well, maybe we can use this electricity, the electricity from... Volta's battery, in fact, um, to um, to see how the nervous system works. So he, w- he was using Volta's battery and he was shocking, instead of frog legs, the corpses of people that had been executed for their crimes. Um, and um, You know, some of them had been beheaded. Some of them had been hanged. Um, The ones that had not been beheaded, he could get them to smile and change their expressions, open and close their eyes by placing these electrodes. He could even get, um, uh, with more powerful electricity, he could get them to sit up. And um, it was quite um, an eerie thing to witness. But he fundamentally showed that the, the, the muscular system and the nervous system was responding to electricity and that maybe electricity was the substance of life that was controlling things all through electrical means. So, um, so that was some very important work. And a little aside story is that um, um, people have suggested, although no one has definitive proof, that, that his work, Aldiri's work, um, inspired Mary Shelley to um, write her book Frankenstein because Mary Shelley's father um, was well aware of Aldiri's work because he had friends in the scientific community. And although Mary Shelley was only uh, three or four at the time Aldiri was working, um, they think that when she got older, her father t- had told her these stories and that that inspired her for uh, to uh, make this uh uh, to write this story about Frankenstein's who is brought back to life with electricity.
0: This is very interesting. Uh, the character Frankenstein is perhaps one of the most recognized icons of uh, horror fiction and the story is also a fascinating story and uh, it is very interesting to track that how these fantastic stories uh, come about uh, and how do the original ideas emerge. Uh, As uh, you mentioned a few moments ago, uh, in this case perhaps a fascination with electricity and a view that it is at the core of all living things uh, led to this story. Uh, That's very interesting. Moving on, uh, as interest in electricity grew many so-called treatments uh, for headaches, for bad thoughts, and even for sexual difficulties uh, also emerged uh, that were based on the use of electricity. You discuss some of these in the book. Uh, can you give us a few interesting examples? Yeah, so
1: that is, again, true. Uh, that, as I as I mentioned with, with Amber, as soon as people find something that has... Um, properties, physical properties. They try to see if they can use it to um, improve their health. And it was no different than when the batteries were created and then later um, uh, um, electrical generators were created. In fact, there wasn't any real use for practical use for these things at the time what's the purpose of generating electricity if you don't have any light bulbs, you don't have any toasters, you know, they don't have any iPods. Like there was no practical reason to use this, okay? And so um, one of the major markets for electrical generators of all types um, were physicians. Physicians, um, they use these things to treat patients. And, that, and actually there was a profession of medicine called electrician, okay? Um, so just like we would have radiologists, um, we, they, they were electricians, and they treated diseases um, with electricity. Um, all diseases, all types of diseases. You couldn't hardly think of a disease that they wouldn't treat with electricity, all right? And, um, and they had a following, and at that time, Uh, most medical evidence was entirely anecdotal, right? The patient said they got better. You know, the doctor said this other, he didn't use electricity and somebody died. So everything was anecdotal. There was nothing to prove that that, that there was any uh, help, but nevertheless, uh, they were doing this. Um, What happened is that um, for one reason or another, um, it became popular to use electricity to treat uh, sexual disorders of all types. And... um, and um, for, for women, that usually involved shocking the vagina. For men, it involved shocking the testicles or the penis. And, um, and so anybody who had a sexual problem, they went to the doctor. And these were painful treatments. And um, that we've had multiple, multiple sessions. And, um, and so what was kind of a breakthrough for people was the availability of the battery all right? Uh, because when the battery became available and, and purchasable by the public, then a whole bunch of quack medical companies sprung up and sold at home devices for your health. And, um, one of the most famous ones in the United States was something called the Pulvermacher belt. And it looked like any belt. Um, and, um, the, the, the belt itself was a battery. So the whole belt was a battery and it had had two electrodes on either side of your back and you'd put it on and you could feel this tingling in your back and you could feel that something was happening and they claimed it would cure anything. Well, they kind of, after a while, this was going pretty well and then they decided that they were going to target um, sexual disorders in men and so they added like a scrotal pouch to... To this belt, and they wired that up. So now you felt this tingling around your testicles, and um, and they prescribed that for people who had erectile dysfunction or any any type of sexual disease. Um, and so the, the beauty of this is that no doctor was involved, all right? You, you didn't have to tell anybody you had a problem. Nobody had to know about this. It came to your house in a brown paper wrapper. You used it, uh, you know, while you were sleeping or something. Uh, you could put it under your clothes during the daytime. Nobody had to know. And this became very, very um, popular and prevalent um, for, for, like I said, among men. And they were selling a lot of these things. What happened in the United States is, it, around the uh, turn of the century, I'm talking about the early 1900s, um, is that uh, two things really happened. Um, one is the Food and Drug, the, the Clean, the, the uh, Food and Drug Act of, of 1910, I believe it was, uh, said that you couldn't commit a medical fraud on the public by, sell, sell, by selling them devices that didn't work basically. And there was no data to show that this stuff worked. Okay. So, so that was one problem. And then the postal service also had rules that said you couldn't mail anything uh, through the mails in an effort to defraud the public. So they were getting it from the food and drug administration. They were getting it from the postal service. And basically this company just crumbled as did, as did the rest of them. And, 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 and electrotherapy itself got a bad name. And um, and so electricians went away, and for many years, nobody treated anybody with electricity anymore. It was just uh, considered to be uh, a scam.
0: Uh, Tim, before we discuss uh, examples of cutting edge medical use of electricity, I want to touch upon a statement uh, that you make in the book. You say in the book, "Life is nothing." If not electrical,
1: that's right. Um, so what I mean by that is that um, our entire um, our entire existence is governed by our nervous system, uh, most notably our brain, but also the nerves that, that infiltrate every tissue of our body. And all of our bodily functions, not just movement, but uh, ev- everything from like digestion, <laughs> okay, okay, uh, you know, your heart rate everything your blood pressure is controlled by the nervous system and the nervous system is fundamentally electrical in nature the, the whole purpose of the nervous system is to is to generate electricity store it and release it at the appropriate time to send messages around the body both information to and from the brain if there were no no electricity there would be no life the, all of life is based on Electricity, And even for organisms that don't have sophisticated nervous systems, they still um, rely on electrical signals um, to, to do their bidding. So life is, is really nothing um, without uh, electricity.
0: We will continue discussing these developments and we will dig deep on ideas such as uh, medical implants and uh, neural messaging. But I want to touch upon an interesting point here. Cells are basic building blocks of life and cells communicate using chemical signals. But when we look at a nervous system, when we look at cells in a nervous system, uh, these cells communicate using electric signals. Is it correct to say that there are two distinct systems of uh, communication in biology one system uses chemicals to communicate, while another system uses electric signals and electric pulses to communicate. Uh, what is your view on this?
1: So I, I would say that the line is kind of fuzzy there between the two systems. For example, even, even in the in nervous system, um, there are what, what are called electrical junctions between neurons where electricity just gets passed from one cell to the next, But more likely is that the the signal comes down from one neuron down, um, to the axon. And at the, at the end, it will release chemicals and those chemicals will go, will go into the synaptic cleft, which is an area between the cells. And they will start, will, will trigger an electrical signal in the next neuron. Okay, so you have an electrical, a purely electrical signal that's punctuated by these chemical junctions. And so, um, the, and, the, and the reason that that's important is that provides another level of control. So your, your body has um, neurotransmitters that are chemicals that transmit to receptors on the other cell, and you can, uh, and the body can interfere with that if it wants. By putting in inhibitors of that, or um, or not, or or other molecules that um, that that react, and so it's a electrical system that is largely regulated by um, by chemicals, biochemicals, and so it's the two things together. Now there's also uh, uh, chemical signals in the form of hormones, right? But these hormones that are, uh, you know, chemicals that travel throughout your body and affect um, distant sites for where they're created, often some of those hormones also stimulate nervous activity in in certain cells. So it's the the two things together that allow the body to, uh, to shuttle its electricity in appropriate ways to do what needs to be done in terms of maintaining life for the organism.
0: Medical implants uh, are widely used uh, these days. Uh, These are devices that are uh, placed uh, inside uh, a human body uh, to monitor and regulate body functions or to deliver medicines. Uh, For instance, pacemaker is implanted uh, in the chest to help regulate heartbeat. So, the Emergence of these implants uh, in our bodies is mainly based on the research that uh, there are electrical pulses in our bodies that control and regulate various systems.
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, so I'm glad you mentioned the heart pacemaker because that was one of the one of the original implants, and it, um, it it's possible because uh, the job that was at, that this implant is asked to do is rather crude. So um, the way that a a heart beats is that you have an electrical impulse that starts at the top and spreads over the heart and contracts the muscle, and then another another electrical signal and it contracts the muscle. And so if there's something wrong with that natural system and you put an electrode on the top of the heart and you from externally regulate the stimulus, you can get the heart to beat without its internal signal. And so you really just need this one electrode, okay, to get it to work. And the other thing is that you don't have to be so precise where you put this electrode. And the third thing is that you can have an external controller, and the original ones had an external controller. So the wire would come out of your body, and the controller was about the size of a book, Okay, and you would um, and you you'd attach it to yourself with a belt or you'd wear it over your shoulder. So you'd have this enormous electrical electronic controller doing a relatively simple job, and that would be giving electrical pulse once a second to keep you alive. You know, and so um, and so that was the first thing. But then after that was done, then it became possible to do other things. And um, one of the next things is cochlear implants. So. So the so the cochlea is is a an organ in your inner ear that allows you to hear, and so um, so cochlea is here's another Latin term it's another Latin term that means snail and if you've ever seen this 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 tiny little organ it looks like a curled snail shell so think of this as a cornucopia or some other curled cone and um, and so the the sound enters the one end, and goes all the way down the spiral to the the other end. And so different frequency sounds can get different distances into this cone. Well, this this cone is lined with cells that are called hair cells, and they detect sound coming down this tube. And um, depending on where they are on the length of the tube, that determines the frequency that they tell the brain. So um, one of the most profound types of deafness is if you happen to not have these hair cells. Either you're born without them or there's some damage, and you lose the hair cells. So now you can't hear anything, and a hearing aid isn't going to help you because making it louder isn't going to make any difference. The fundamental cells that are needed uh, are gone. So what a cochlear implant, and, and the simplest way to put this is, uh, imagine it's a little tiny blade of grass that has electrodes line lining on it, and then you the doctors will surgically insert this so it goes around all the way winds itself all the way around to the end of the cochlea and then you have a microphone that is is uh, an external microphone that picks up sound and says, "Oh, this sound is such and such a frequency. I need to stimulate." cochleal cells um, this deep into the cochlea and so um, and so it stimulates that area of the cochlea the brain thinks oh gu- guess what you know the cochlea is working again <laughs> we're getting signals we're getting si- electrical signals from the cochlea and uh, you can start to hear now if you imagine that there was only one electrode on there you'd only hear one tone when you well, you can't speak you can't do anything but one tone some of the early ones had, maybe six electrodes. So now you you could hear like robotic speech. There was only like... But some of the modern ones have hundreds, uh, 250 or more electrodes. And that gives you something very, very close to genuine speech understanding, authentic hearing. And this has worked so well in adults. This This has been around for decades for adults that now infants are being given cochlear implants because what's uh, what's been found is that um, your speech patterns and your ability to talk and everything develops very early and you must be able to hear normally in order to develop normal speech. And so um, in the United States, uh, the FDA recommends uh, cochlear implants for those 12 months and over. But in reality, Uh, pediatricians are putting him in children as young as six months. Okay. And they they don't see any reason to wait. It's a relatively safe surgery and it makes a world of difference uh, for the child. And so, um, so this is a really transforming technology to save those people who have that specific um, specific problem with hearing. So, um, so it's truly a remarkable breakthrough. And the whole thing is, is is implanted. They wear an external microphone on the back, Of their head just behind their ear. And that's not, if you've ever seen somebody with it, that's not protruding through the skin. It's being held on by a magnet. The magnet is underneath the skin. And so the microphone is being held and the rest of it is done wirelessly. So this is truly transformative technologies. And those are the first two things that were really uh, used for implants.
0: And uh, do you think we may see similar products in future to restore vision? Yes,
1: that work is already going on, and I had the privilege of actually um meeting someone who's in a clinical trial here in the United States um, who has a uh, implant in their brain um, to help them restore vision so um so what his uh what he has is a small camera like a cell phone camera like an iPhone or something like that. The camera is on the bridge of his glasses, so he wears dark glasses. Um, the glasses are just for cosmetics. Um, He wears dark glasses. That camera transmits what it sees um, to a controller. He wears a controller outside his body, just like the original heart transplant theirs did, because it's relatively large. And that controller sends a signal to an electrical implant that is in his brain, in the back of his brain, (coughs) in the occipital lobe. (coughs) And so Um, and so what happens is that the camera detects an image, the image is converted, uh, into an electrical pattern. The pattern goes into his brain and he sees, so he, so, but, okay, so let me, the status is now, again, limited by the electrodes. He has, um, he has, uh, 60, 62, 63 electrodes in his brain. Now, that That's the number of uh, picture elements that he can see now. So imagine a checkerboard. A checkerboard is 64 picture elements, right? So imagine trying to make a picture by putting checkers on a checkerboard, okay? So this is the resolution that he can see. And um, not very good, but he couldn't see anything before. So now he can see when a person is standing there. Now he can see a curb. Now he sees when he's gonna bump into something. And he is absolutely elated. And um, the hope is that this is the first generation, but as electrodes improve and we go from 64 electrodes to 640 electrodes, et cetera, et cetera, that his vision the re- resolution of his vision will be will be very very close to uh, to what normal vision is. So that's his hope. He's very optimistic. He's very pleased. He's one of six people in the clinical trial that that's that's doing this. And I think this is going to be this is going to be a wave of the future.
0: And how safe and how effective uh, these deep brain stimulation technologies are? Uh, are these uh, uh, surgical procedures? And if so, if so. Uh, how deep you go in the brain and how dangerous or safe or effective uh, these deep brain stimulation technologies are?
1: Yeah, um, yes. So, um so there are um, various different types of implants you can put on. Some of them just go on the surface of the brain. So in other words, um, they're, just, they're just lying on top of the brain. They don't go deep into the brain. But as you mentioned, there are also um, deep brain stimulators. And one of the ones that uh, is, is the most well-known is deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's disease is a disease where people have tremors. And one of the ways you can relieve the tremors is by stimulating a part of the brain that's very, very deep in the brain. That's why it's called deep brain stimulation. Again, there's an external controller, et cetera, et cetera. It's been very effective. A lot of a lot of people with Parkinson's disease have these implants, and so um, generally these things have been pretty safe. Now, there's they have the same uh, they have the same um, issues. Uh, there's two issues, major major issues with with surgery, any type of brain surgery. One is bleeding, hemorrhage, okay, and the other and the other has to do with infection, okay. So these technologies have that same have that same risk element, but it isn't much more than any other invasive procedure. So, um, so there's, there's, and these things like the infections are often manageable, you know, they're treated with antibiotics and the patient recovers. A nice, nice thing about some of these implants too is they can be removed uh, just as easily. So if things aren't working, you can just remove them. So they're seen as reversible procedures. And that's better than what was before because before with Parkinson's disease, instead of stimulating um, that area of the brain, they cut it out, they ablated it, okay? And you can't undo that. So you'd have to go in there, deep surgery anyway, to remove a part of the brain. And if you remove too much or you remove the wrong structure, you would have trouble, and in fact, that's how they discovered that they could use electricity. Because they would also use electricity, they touch it to the area they were going to remove surgically to see if that was the right area. And they noticed that when they touch it with electricity, the problem stopped, the tremors stopped. So they thought maybe we can just use the electricity. Maybe we don't have to cut anything. So, so this is uh, this this is how deep brain stimulation was born. But these things are becoming rather. Routine now, they're out of clinical trials. There, people are people are using using these things every day, and they're and cer- certainly uh, cochlear implants have been around for decades, um, and and uh, deep brain stimulation has also been been around quite a, quite a bit now.
0: Modern electronic devices uh, that are all around us and that are part of our lives use electric pulses, electric signals to function and to communicate. Now. Uh, some proposed technologies, uh, such as uh, Elon Musk's neural link, aim to connect electric signals in our brains to signals in machines. Uh, these proposed technologies aim to create a machine-brain interface. As a researcher, uh, do you think such initiatives and such proposed technologies uh, will work?
1: So... Um Whenever we get into manipulating the brain, of course, we get into a, uh, an area of complications in terms of uh, both ethics, but also, um, also futuristic things. And um, so Elon Musk, as you mentioned, I think most people are familiar with Elon Musk. He's made Tesla cars, electric cars. Um, and uh, he's he's head of SpaceX, which is a rocket company. And um, he's got a tunnel that, uh, not a tunnel, the tunnels between France and England, but what he calls it, a bore or something like that is an underground transportation thing. And his latest venture is something called Neuralink. So Neuralink is, is the idea of supersizing things. All right. So I just mentioned to you that um, the, the visual technology that I've talked about, and the cochlear technology, these are all limited by the number of electrodes that you can you, that you can use. So um, currently for brain implants, the number of electrodes you can put in the brain uh, is about 110, okay? So there's something called a Utah slant array, which is the state of the art now, it's made by the University of Utah, and invented there, and, um, and and it has a. It's like a ten by ten or ten by eleven array of little needles, and you basically it looks like a pin cushion. You stick it on the brain and attach it there, and so now you have a hundred. You have one hundred and ten. Well, uh, Musk is saying that uh, let's supersize this instead of instead of a hundred, let's do ten thousand. All right, let's put ten thousand. So you say, well, how how can you possibly 10,000, you can't put in in all these Utah rays. And so what he has done is he's miniaturized the technology to the point where he has microscopic electrodes that he calls threads. And his company has invented basically a sewing machine from hell. It's this monstrous sewing machine that's controlled by a neurosurgeon to put these, um, these electrodes over the surface of the brain. And um, he claims uh, that um, in, the, in the future, they've already put this, uh, these electrodes in um, pigs and monkeys and, uh, and demonstrated that they work. And he's currently on the verge of putting the, this in human trials in the United States. Um, so, um, and I have no doubt that that will happen. He keeps claiming this year, this year, it's been a couple of years. So, but, but it's coming, it's coming. And, um, and once you can put that many electrodes, it kind of opens up the possibility of all kinds of things, okay? So one of the things that you mentioned, Wasim, is what, what are the problems with this? Suppose you can control a person's thoughts in this way or, or control their bodies. And um, you can hook this up to a computer and have the person do things or think things that they never intended to do. And that is a um, – a problem, and one of the things that um, that Musk articulates is his worry about artificial intelligence being incorporated with this technology. So, artificial intelligence is the type of stuff that if you put your if your your bank check into a into a we call them in the United States ATM machine, automatic teller machines. So. Um, so if you put your check in there, it reads it and it knows that it's the check for one hundred and fifty dollars. You know, it, it, artificial intelligence is doing that, and uh, artificial intelligence, of course, is what happens when you play a computer game of chess. All right, but um, that's artificial intelligence, and that's pretty benign because these things, these computers, can only read a check. They can only play chess. They can't. The chess thing can't read the check, and vice versa. You know, they don't have something called artificial general intelligence. So artificial general intelligence is more akin to, um, to, to basically thinking like a human being. And scientists are um, are, on, are all over the place on whether this is even possible. Um, if any of your, your listeners have um, seen the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, that's all about a computer with artificial general intelligence. In that movie, it was predicted that, it's called 2001, I think it was made in the 1970s, that by 2001, artificial intelligence would be in computers and they would be attacking the human race. Well, we're now in 2022, There's artificial intelligence is nowhere to be seen. Some scientists think that it's coming still and others think it's just impossible. But anyway, if that were the case, if you could have a machine a computer that had the same intelligence of man, and you hooked it up to someone's brain, yeah, I guess the machine could think it might be good. I don't have any legs. I'm a computer, but I don't have any legs. This guy has legs. Let's let him let me control him. So he can walk around with me, you know. So that that's the idea. Um, so I think that um, I think that Elon Musk likes to throw that out there because it makes the technology seem so futuristic. But I think. Um, We have a long way before that and hopefully along the way we'll have practical uses like getting paralyzed people to walk maybe relieving some of the symptoms of alzheimer's disease um these types of things and then some if if artificial general intelligence ever does show up then maybe we'll have to rethink that problem but we're nowhere close to that now
0: you have partially answered my next uh, question In the book, you mainly discuss electricity and its relationship with the living organisms. My question is, why you thought it was important to discuss the topic of artificial intelligence in this book?
1: So, um, I I, I talked about artificial intelligence for a couple of reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is that um, people... I was afraid, because I, I anticipated your question about Elon the Musk technology, and I was afraid that some people, they would um, bring up artificial intelligence without actually having a good understanding of what artificial intelligence is, and that they would not have understand that distinction, like I just made to you about artificial intelligence that reads your check and artificial general intelligence like Hal has on 2001. So, uh, so, um, these artificial intelligence, uh, it could cause problems. Like for example, uh, um, uh, Musk is also using artificial intelligence to develop cars that drive themselves, you know, But this car that can drive itself is not going to take over your mind, all right? This is not what we're talking about. So um, this kind of artificial intelligence um, that allows you to to play chess and things like that is basically, um, it's called deep learning programming, which allows a computer to learn things the way we learn things from experience, okay? So when you're a child um, and somebody shows you a picture in in a storybook and tells you That's a cat, and you you look at it. Then they show you another storybook with a different picture, and they say, that's a cat. Pretty soon, you get to know as a child what a cat is, you know, because people keep reinforcing it, and that's how these computers learn. They they do something, you say no, that's not right. It's this, and then you do it again, no, and eventually the comp- computer learns that oh, a cat's got triangle ears, it's got it's got whiskers, it says meow. That's what a cat is, and and so this is how these computers learn it. But they learn things very very narrowly. All right, once you've changed it to learn what a cat is. You got to retrain it to learn what a dog is, okay? It, it's because it's such a narrow thing. And that's the type of artificial intelligence that's available now, but this is not anything that's going to take over your brain. It's this futuristic stuff that, uh, that, that we need to work. So that's why I discussed artificial intelligence to define what it was when we when, in connection with the brain implants.
0: Tim, is it possible uh, that in near future, we have artificial limbs that are actually connected to our bodies in a manner that uh, we could control these artificial limbs uh, with our thoughts. Talk us through some of the cutting edge research on the development of uh, such uh, artificial limbs. Uh,
1: we have that already. Um, we, have, we have this ability. In, it, it, so there are a number of places um, that are working on this technology and have prototypes that work pretty well. So um, one of the places is is University of Utah. They're the ones that came up with the Utah array and they actually can take those same arrays and implant it in the, you know, so if you have, if you have an amputee and they have nerves that have been severed because their arm was released, they can implant those electrodes into the severed um, nerve endings, pick up those signals and then tell an artificial limb that they've connected to move and, and and everything so the person thinks move my hand just like they would with a natural hand the, the 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 um the electrodes picked up that signal coming from the nervous system they send it to a computer that says motor in the motor in the wrist move you know and so this actually can be done uh there are others that um that work with external um electrodes and, and things like that but the problem of this, the limitations of this technology now are, A, battery life, okay? It's not useful to have an arm that you have to recharge every two hours, okay? Uh, and the second thing is um, is uh, the weight. They're very heavy. So they're only really, uh, most of the work has been done with rather large men who can, who can handle the weight of it. It has to be made much um, Smaller, and I think that again will be part of limiting, you know, of, of better batteries, uh, more with higher densities, uh, energy density batteries. Um, and also, one of the big challenges is that it's not. People often think of artificial limbs as just movement, but that's not really the whole problem. the whole, The real problem is that when you pick up a glass, why don't you crush the glass? The reason you don't crush the glass is because you're, you, you feel it, you feel the pressure, and you know the appropriate amount of pressure to do the grip. And so when you have these artificial limbs that don't have that feedback of touch, you pick up the glass and you crush the glass. And so this is, this is, a, this is a problem, but now these prostheses are being given um, touch sensation as well. And so this is the next level is to give these um, the next te- technical obstacles to give these uh, these limbs touch sensations and um, and that involves coming up with sophisticated uh, sensors for pressure and temperature and vibration um, and and converting that into an electrical signal in uh, in a quick enough fashion for it to be useful. you know the information about how hot. This, the the pot is has to come uh, you know within a few seconds, not you know a, a minute later. So so that work that technology is being worked on as well, but um, it's coming and and the limbs are here and they are in in trials on test patients, but they're not generally available to the public. But I'm very optimistic that they will be in the near future.
0: When we use our natural limbs, uh, we do this naturally. We don't say to our hand that move in this direction and now hold this cup and now open the tap. We do all this naturally and the brain sends required instructions almost uh, in an unconscious manner is this what we want to see with the artificial limbs uh, as well? Is this the ultimate goal that everything works naturally and smoothly when we use these artificial limbs as it works with the natural limbs?
1: The goal is for it to happen with the natural limb. Okay. And, um, you know, um, there is a there is a training period because uh, it, again it's it's also working. Uh, artificial intelligence is being used to program these things, so there's like a learning curve for the people who are using it. But the goal is that they will not distinguish that the same way that you move your hand. You don't really think, "Oh, I'm going to move my hand from here to here." You just you just do it. It's the same thing, because the brain is still producing those commands, and it's sending it out. The problem is. That it just gets as far as the severed nerve and it ends, and so it's wasted information. So the idea is to pick up that information that's coming anyway from the brain, and then change what the what it's saying instead of like move a muscle. That the, the computer is going to move this motor, this, mo- this little motor that's in that's in the arm. So so the idea is that it would be the same. And um, some of the prototypes people have been actually able to. Um, Play simple songs on a piano, you know. So that shows you the type of uh, you. You can't be thinking move this index finger to hit that key. You have you have to have the same type of dexterity um, that you would have naturally. So this is uh, this is pretty impressive technology, and um, and it it's uh, it's on our doorsteps.
0: Tim, we are discussing your book Spark: The Life of Electricity and the Electricity of Life. The book is very well written. It is a thorough book that covers a lot. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. Is there anything else that you wish to add to this conversation uh, before we finish? Um, so let, let me
1: just explain to your listeners about um, it, you know the, the purpose of this book. The purpose of this book um, is to teach people who know um, who know about electricity, but may not know um, the important details or its potential? To teach them about electricity, you don't have to know anything about electricity to start reading the book and the stories. What I've done is what I've I've put in. Each chapter is a story to illustrate a particular point. Okay, so that maybe a laden jar is a capacitor. You know, it may it, it, there's a, there's another story about. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the other start chapter about artificial intelligence, all of these things, and so the idea is that people will relate better, retain longer when they get information in the term in terms of a story. So it's so I, I just told you about being able to see with this technology, but in the book I introduce you to a person that actually has this. In his brain, I have dinner with, with him and his wife, and he tells me what it's like to be blind, and he tells me the difference that this has made in his life. And so this is a, you know this is a real-time real person walking around with this technology now. So I tried, to, I tried to personalize this so that people can relate to this and that they realize that people are walking or, they don't know this all day long they 're passing people with cochlear implants and heart monitors uh, i mean and, 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 uh, and pacemakers and brain implants and these other technologies and um, and um, and more and more people are doing this and so I think it 's coming um, electrical relief for a lot of diseases that 's the way I like to think of it electrical. Uh, mechanism for a lot of diseases are coming. So I, I don't want people to be afraid of this technology when it arrives. I want them to be comfortable with it. And that's really the goal of the book is to make people comfortable with the technology, see where it's coming and, and uh, see where it's going and, and, and see what our future looks like. And also some of the, the threats like artificial dental intelligence. But I think that, that the potential far outweighs the, uh, the, the threat.
0: Professor Tim Jorgensen, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps.
1: Thank you very much, Haseem. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed every minute of it.
0: Thank you and goodbye.